All right, Mark chapter 13, verses 3 to 13, Jesus' counsel for last day Christians. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. So you want to make sure that you are enlightened or discerning, right? For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. So be at peace, be calm. Do not be troubled for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves or be ready. So we got being ready, be calm, be enlightened. Watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. So be busy, be busy preaching, be busy spreading the gospel. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand. So once again, be calm, be at peace, do not worry. Or premeditate while you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will testify against brother or will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but who, he who endures to the end shall be saved or be strong or be enduring or be persevering. So that's what I want to take a look at tonight is to be busy and to be filled and of course to be strong. But the other three were be ready, be calm, and be enlightened. Be ready, be calm, and be enlightened. And uh, one thing about deception, just going to give this as by way of introduction. How do you guard yourself against deception? By examining yourself, by encouraging yourself, and by exercising yourself. I think that's three easy ways to remember, right? They all begin with the word E or with the letter E. Examine yourself. Now listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you were in the faith. Now, this is written to a church, written to a church that Paul established, written church to a, what you would call a charismatic church, where the gifts were present and God had done great things there. And he's writing to this body of believers, what you would say are believers, and he tells them to examine themselves, whether they're in the faith, to test themselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Now, that, that's important because, you know, the idea is, you know, you come to Christ, you come to the altar, you pray the sinner's prayer, you're saved. God has come into your life, you're saved. And then, of course, you might have some doubts about your salvation. Well, put on the helmet of salvation and resist those doubts and, and uh, believe that you're saved. Well, here the scripture, and I'm just going to add this. The scripture tells us to examine ourselves. In other words, make sure you really are saved. Just don't trust in uh, the event or the moment or the prayer. You know, if you came forward and prayed, oh, that is awesome, and a wonderful transaction took place, or we believe it took place. 
But what if it didn't take place? Is it possible for somebody to respond to an altar call and pray the sinner's prayer and not get saved? Absolutely it's possible because God knows their heart and they might not have had saving faith. They might have been coming because they're burdened about something in their life or they feel like they need to make a change. But they never truly had what you call saving faith. They never truly placed their faith in Christ so that they were born again of the Spirit of God. I know when I got saved, I truly got saved. I mean, I really did. But have you ever known somebody that that has done that and there's been no change? Or they followed Jesus for a while and then they just went back to the way that they used to be? Absolutely. And so this, this is very important that you need to make sure you are truly saved. Have you ever prayed the sinner's prayer more than once just to be sure? I did. I did. You know, I, I got saved. I got wonderfully saved. I got two days later, I got wonderfully filled with the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the presence of God was so strong in me. But I remember after some time, the pastor was leading people in a sinner's prayer, and he said, just pray this prayer. And I remember I just said, Lord, I just want to make sure again. And I just earnestly and sincerely just prayed right along with them again. And when you go to the communion table, you're supposed to examine yourselves, right? And there's nothing wrong with examining yourself. There is something wrong with uh, if you truly are saved, thinking that you have to be saved again and again and again and again. Well, well, you need to grow past that. Am I right? You just need to grow past that. But make sure you're saved. Then encourage yourself. This is what David did when he was greatly distressed. But the Bible says David strengthened himself. Another translation said he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You need to get to the place, every single one of us needs to get to the place where we can have a relationship with God where we can find God and we don't need anybody else in our life to find God. That's what David did. His, his soldiers were thinking about stoning him to death. He was dwelling in a strange land. His heart was greatly distressed. The enemy had carried away his children and all of his wives' possessions. He had nothing nothing. He was at the very bottom and nobody was there to encourage him. Nobody was there. David, believe God. David, you're going to be the next king. David, remember the faithfulness of God. David, let's pray right now. Let's inquire that nobody was there for him. He, in his own faith, encouraged himself. We need to be able to do that. You need to do it every single day when you read your Bible and pray. You need to be able to have a Time with God. You know, when, you, when you're raising children, eventually you want to get to the place where they can feed themselves. Don't you? Where, you know, that they can literally feed themselves. They can sit at the table with fork and spoon and feed themselves. And then you want to get to the place where if you go away that night, maybe take your, your spouse out for dinner or whatever, that they're able to prepare food and take care of themselves. You want them to grow up. Well, God wants the same for you and I. Now, I'm a firm believer in the one another's exhorting one another and encouraging one another and praying for one another and the importance of church and all that. I, I preach it 
all the time. And uh, there's great safety and encouragement in fellowship with other believers. God never wants us just simply to be on our own, on an island, just trying to make it through. He gives us people, right? And gives us shepherds. But we have to have a faith where we can encourage ourselves in God, even if nobody else is. Because you'll come to a place where you will feel alone. And you got to, with your own faith and your own attitude tenacity and your own calling on the Lord and reading scripture, find God. Hear from God. Am I, am I making sense? And so you got to learn to encourage yourself, right? You got to examine yourself. And the last one is you got to exercise yourself. The Bible tells us that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Exercise yourself or train yourself. The, the, the meaning behind that is self-discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit is the key to holiness and godliness. I bring my body under. Bring it into submission. The idea is that that you need to have discipline in your life, prompted or empowered by the Holy Spirit to really live a godly, holy life. And uh, every single day, You exercise yourself, you train yourself, you discipline yourself, you give yourself to the pursuit of holiness, to obeying God, to saying no to the flesh, to saying yes to the spirit. That makes sense? Discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not self-effort, but discipline empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the fruit of the spirit is what? self Control. Self-control. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound or disciplined mind. You exercise yourself. Many times, because I exercise. I exercise four to five times a week. And trust me, many times it's just pure self-discipline that gets me out there. I, I don't feel like it, especially the older I get. I'm tired or I'm achy or I'm sore, whatever, I don't feel like it, but I know I need to do this, and so I choose to do it. It's simply self-discipline that causes me to exercise myself physically. Spiritual discipline, prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is necessary for you to grow in godliness or holiness. It just is. If you don't have that, then you will... Your mind will not be under control. It'll run rampant here and there and will bring you into great anxiety and great bondage because you can't control your mind. And also your bodily passions and appetites will get the better of you because you are not controlling them by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not exercising discipline, godly discipline. All right, let's take a look at Jesus' last day counsel. The first one is to be busy. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. There's a parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 13. It starts out as follows. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. 
They thought, he's talking to his disciples, they thought the disciples thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So Jesus is speaking this parable, basically saying, I'm going to be like the guy that left into a far country for a season, and then I'm coming back. I'm going to leave you. Well, he did that 2,000 years ago, all right? They thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he went away and he's going to return. That's what Jesus did. He went to heaven. He's going to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minus and said to them, do business till I come. Busy. Do business. I think another translation says, occupy till I come. Don't be lazy. Work. Work. Serve till I come. And so that's Jesus' last day counsel. He is coming back. What do we do in the meantime? We take care of business. What's the business? The Great Commission. That's our business as a church. That's what we're supposed to be busy doing, right? Taking care of business. Last week I talked about how it's not God's will for us to go into the UP and buy the acreage and live off the land and supply ourselves with plenty of food and just wait for his return. So a guy came up to me afterwards. I don't know if he's here tonight, but he came up to me afterwards. He says, is there anything wrong with making preparations for your family? I said, no, you know, because I do that. Uh, I'm investing in my future for my wife and I, for retirement and things of this nature. Nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong with it if you are hoarding it and also not serving or working the Great Commission until he returns. Like you're escaping. We're not called to escape nor are we called to hoard things, but we are called to work and serve until he comes. Otherwise, we're like those that just take what God's given us and hide it because we're motivated by fear over all that's happening. And so we're just hiding, hiding. The Bible says before Jesus returns, The gospel must be preached to all nations. So there will be a group of people that are actively engaged in preaching the gospel, carrying out the Great Commission. There will be people engaged in that. There will be churches engaged in that. We, as God's people, individually and as a church, need to be engaged in serving God and doing business till Jesus returns. You guys agree with that, don't you? Be busy. And what are the three main areas that we serve in? In your home, and in your work, and in your church. Your home, be busy serving God in your home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Women, yield yourself, respect your husband, raise your family, teach him about Jesus, provide for your home through work. Let your marriage be a testimony to all those that don't know Jesus about how wonderful Jesus is. Let it be an example of Christ's love for the church. You're supposed to serve God at work. That becomes your mission field. And to serve God in his church. 
Rick Warren once put it this way. He said, there'll be two questions, and you know them ahead of time. It's the final exam. When you as a Christian stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the two, Christians are, two questions are this. What did you do with Jesus, and what did you do with my gifts? He says, those are the two questions, and you have to be able to answer those. And so you know the questions ahead of time. And uh, I think there's a lot, lot of truth to that. I think there's more to it than just that. But listen, what did you do with Jesus? Well, I have believed upon him. And he, he is my Savior and Lord, and I followed him faithfully. And what did you do with my gifts? Those talents, spiritual gifts, abilities that he gave that you're supposed to serve God with. What did you do with those? I hid them. No, I used them. I... I, I grew them. I, I invested them into the kingdom of God and in God's church. Amen? So we need to be busy. You need to be. And I learned this. I learned this. That if you let God order your steps, for the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. If you let God order your steps, you will have enough time to be faithful at home, at work, and at church. Doing everything that God has called you to do, and you can have the blessings of the Lord upon you. But when you get things out of order or wrongly prioritized, some people get too busy for children, or they're too busy for church, or they're too busy making money, or they're too, or maybe they're too busy working at church and they're neglecting the family. I'm just telling you that if you let Jesus lead you and you properly prioritize your life, I've learned this, you can have enough time to do what God has called you to do at home and on the job and in your local church so that nothing is neglected, nothing is wrongly prioritized because those are areas that God has called you to. And if he's called you to do those things, then he'll give you the grace to do those things properly understood and prioritized. That makes sense? All right. Let us go on. What keeps you from being busy? Well, in this parable in Luke chapter 19... On down it goes. I'm going to read to you the one guy's response that took that money that he was given and didn't do anything with it, all right? So where am I? I'm Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 13. It goes on and he says this. Verse 19. Verse 20, I'm sorry. Then another came saying, so I'm in Luke 19, 20. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. Listen to this, I feared you because you are a, an austere man or a hard, difficult man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you, where you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I would judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Then he took the money from him and gave it to somebody else that was more faithful to what God had given to him. But listen, it was, he actually felt like, I'm not going to serve God or do business properly because 
He had a wrong view of God. He thought that God was harsh, demanding, demanding, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping where what I did not sow. So in other words, he actually thought that, that God would require something out of you that he didn't put into you. That he's going to require something from you that he somehow did not deposit there for you. And he said, basically he says, that now if you thought that of me, then you should at least have done something with the money. But you didn't do anything with it. You're, you're a wicked servant. You know, that, a wrong view of God keeps people from serving God, from engaging in the work of the Lord. They think that God is harsh or demanding or judgmental or that he's going to ask them to do something that they're ill-equipped to do. That he's going to play, put them in a situation and that they're not equipped for it. They feel unqualified. They don't feel like they have the power, strength, or the wisdom to do it. And, uh, you know, they just get so afraid that they don't do anything. But that's not God. That's not God. God has created you with gifts and talents and abilities. He saves you. He places in you spiritual gifts. He also gives you his Holy Spirit. And then when he calls you into service, he will ask you to do something above your strength, but not above the ability that he can give you. That make sense? He'll ask you to do something above your strength, your own personal strength, but not above the strength or power that he will give you to do it. So in one sense, man, he's asking me to step out and I just don't feel qualified. I don't think I can do this. And then the Lord would say, but I have placed my spirit in you. I will be your anointing. I will give you the words to say, I will be everything that you need to just trust me. And some people ah, just can't do it, just can't do it. If, if, I, if I slip up, if I fail, the hammer's going to fall on me. And the righteous man falls seven times, Proverbs says. But how many times does he rise up? Seven. Seven. Because God lifts him up. And I've learned this, that if you are attempting to serve the Lord and to really, truly do what he's called you to do, and you do slip up, make mistakes, the Lord is there to forgive you, to bandage you up, to help you up, and to let you do it again, empower you to do it again. He's like a gracious father when, you know, you see your toddler fall down, but you rejoice that they're walking, right? I remember when Hannah took her first steps. We were in the church basement having a fellowship. They had a basement. The fellowship hall was in the basement. We were having a fellowship down there, and they had balloons, and Hannah set her heart on this balloon, and she wanted it. And so she's kind of standing like that and holding on, you know, and toddling around like that. And, and I held the balloon out and said, do you want it? Come, 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 you can have it. And she would squat down and start crawling. I said, no, I'd stand her back up. She's like, and then she took like three steps, her first steps, and got, I gave her the balloon. And then she fell, and so I spanked her for falling. No. I was so happy that she took steps. I rejoiced 
And that's the way the Lord is with us. When we step forward and we're doing his work and serving him, it's that way our whole Christian life. Because he keeps empowering us and calling us and placing us in situations where we need to depend upon him. And we do that and maybe we stumble in it. But God is rejoicing that we are engaged in the work. So we need to be engaged in the work. Am I right about that? And he's not a harsh man. He's not a demanding God. He is there for us. So the next one is to be filled. Verse 11 is not... You who speaks but the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus also gave a parable concerning oil, which is the type of the Holy Spirit. It's found in Matthew 25, 6 to 13. And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise. So you got five foolish, five wise. Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer saying, no, this, there should not be enough for you and for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who already went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and surely said, surely I say to you, I do not know you. That's very key. It's very key. I do not know you. Another time, I think it's in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not do wonderful works in your name? Did we not prophesy or heal or cast out demons? I forget exactly how it goes. And then the Lord responds, depart from me, you wicked servant. I never knew you. That's key. I do not know you. I never knew. Why is that key? Because the foundation of God is sure, tells us in Timothy. The Lord knows those that are his. So when I, this is how I interpret these passages of Scripture. As I compare Scripture with Scripture. Because the Bible is always its best commentary. All right? Whenever Jesus says, I never knew you or I do not know you. These people are not part of God's family. They're not part of what you call the saved. I do not know you. The Lord always knows those that belong to him. When you get saved, you are brought into the family of God. God now knows you as a son or a daughter. So my interpretation of the five wise, five foolish is these five foolish do not have oil. They professed Lord, Lord, but the Lord did not know them. The door was shut to them. They, they were lost outside of the kingdom, outside of the family of God. But the five wise had oil had oil for the night season. They could not give their oil to another person and that they were ready for the wedding. Because the wise had oil, which I believe is a type of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you? You have to answer that as yes, if you're truly a Christian. They had oil for the night season. Aren't you glad 
that there is plenty of supply for even the most challenging and difficult times. We are in a night season in many ways. A hostile culture, the beginning of sorrows, living in this world. This world lies under the sway of the wicked one, the powers of darkness, temptations. Aren't you glad that there is a supply given by God of his Holy Spirit that's on the inside of us that can keep our lamp shining in the night season? It's important, right? They could not give their oil to another person. They say, give us some of yours. And they say, no, go and buy for yourselves. We can't give you what we have. You have to get it for yourself. That tells me is that you cannot save anybody. You can't save anybody. You know, when I, when I was first saved, I was saved out of Roman Catholicism. And I had a godparent because my parents baptized me as an infant. I had godparents. Anybody Catholic that had godparents? Right. And under Catholic doctrine, when you're baptized, original sin is washed away and you're brought into the family of God. Brought into the family of God. Infant baptism. It's very sacramental and it bestows saving grace. Brought into the family of God. But you can only get saved by grace through faith, the Bible says. So what faith saves you as an infant? The godparents' faith. That's the teaching. That's why you have those godparents. They believe for you. Because God honors faith. Okay, so that's what the Roman Catholics teach. Uh, But I don't believe that that's what the scriptures teach. I don't think your faith brings anybody into the kingdom of God. Each person needs to belong or come into the family of God themselves. God has no grandchildren, just children. Does that make sense? So they couldn't give their oil away. I I couldn't give my oil away to my children. They had to come to faith in Christ. And now I have grandchildren. And pray for those grandchildren. I got a, one of my grandchild is, is now a teenager. And I remember raising my teenagers. And boy, are they challenging. And they're at a place where they can believe and press in and find God and be just lit on fire for Jesus. Or they can be caught up in the world in peer pressure and turn from God and reject or silently not really believe. It could be open rebellion or just quietly they are part of the family and they go to church and they don't make a fuss about it and they're just so quiet. Uh, but first opportunity they, they get uh, when they're on their own, they're not following Jesus. They just totally go their way. That's the pressure you have with, with teenagers. You know, when we sent ours off to college, we sent them far away. In the back of my mind, I, I mean, I was pretty convinced that they knew the Lord. But are they going to sink or swim? Are they going to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus? What, what's the decision? What are they going to do? Well, thanks be to God, my, my two children, they just went even deeper with God. And even became more devoted to the Lord away from us 
than when they were under our roof, which was just wonderful, right? They found Jesus on their own. But they were confronted with doctrines and ways of thinking at school. And I remember both Han and Luke would call, Dad, you know, in chapel, or uh, my teacher was teaching us this, and uh, you, you don't believe that, do you? And then I'd have to go through it with them, what, what I believe, and they're being taught something else. And I realized at their age, I can't make them believe the way I do, even though my way's right. <laughs> I can't make them believe it. I mean, they'd have to, a big thing was Oral Roberts, uh, you know, uh, Richard Roberts, Oral Roberts, they were very charismatic, very word of faith, word of faith teaching. And I'm not a word of faith preacher at that level or to that degree. And so they would hear things in chapel or hear things from their professors and they'd call and uh, they want to know, I'm learning this, I'm being taught that. And, you know, they're more Armenian theology and I'm more Calvinistic in my theology. So they'd be learning about losing your salvation. And I taught them that you can have security and salvation. They want to know about that. But they would just call and ask and want to talk about it. And uh, their faith was being challenged. Their doctrine was being challenged. And uh, so that's teenagers, right? That's teenagers. And I could pray for them and be an example to them and talk with them and uh, encourage them and raise them up in the house of the Lord and bias them towards the Christian faith and all that stuff. But I can't believe for them. They have to believe. I can't repent for them. I can't take the Holy Spirit and just give it to them. They have to do it. And that's what makes raising children so challenging. And you have to be very courageous as parents, don't you, when you have these children? Because you want so much for them to walk with Jesus and to know God and to experience it themselves. Yet they are their own person. They are their own person. Hmm. Talking about being filled. The Holy Spirit. Let me give you these things, all right? The Holy Spirit is proof of your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the power of your salvation. Right? All three. The Holy Spirit is the proof of your salvation. Listen to Romans 8, verse 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's the proof, the genuine proof that you are a child of God. Have you been gifted the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit live on the inside of you? Has your spirit been made one with the Holy Spirit through this thing called the new birth? I remember talking to a person, and he was a churchgoer all his life, and he said, I don't have a clue whether or not I have the Holy Spirit. Well, to me, that is great evidence. If you don't have a clue after all these years of going to church that you have the Holy Spirit, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You just don't. I mean, how can you not know? Because... The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, deep in your spirit, and you know because the Holy Spirit now is on the inside, you just know that you know that you're a Christian, that you belong to God, that you're saved. Am I right about that? 
And after a period of time, if you're unsure, you really don't know, my friend, how can God come into your life and you not know it? How could that happen? I don't see how that happens. To me, if you truly believe and you've been born of the Spirit of God, like John chapter 3 talks about, you've been born, you will know it. You just have to know it. So the Holy Spirit is proof of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. How do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I truly know that? Because I have my ticket. You know, like if, if, you, if you buy a ticket to the football game, you know, let's say the big house is sold out. They still sell out their games. It's sold out. And, but you got your ticket. You know, since you have the ticket, you got your seat. It's a guarantee that you're going to let you in and you're going to. But if you go to the game and you don't have a ticket, do you have a guarantee that you're going to get in? Absolutely not. So it is with heaven. What is your guarantee? The scripture tells us in Ephesians 1, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of our ticket to heaven, that we have a place up there, is not found in who I am and what I can do, but it's in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit on the inside of me. That's my guarantee. That's a great guarantee, isn't it? I'm, I have my ticket. My place is reserved. And then also the Holy Spirit is the power of our salvation. First Peter 1 verse 5 says, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Okay, let's, let's move on on this, all right? So he tells us to be filled. And then he tells us to be strong or to be enduring. You'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So here are, let me talk about biblical warnings and biblical promises, and then I'll try to make sense of it. Because when you read your Bible, like if you read the Gospel of John and the book of Romans, and you read 1 John, I mean, there is just great guarantees. You're going to heaven. You're not going to perish. Your salvation is secure. But if you read the book of Hebrews, which is the most challenging of books, I think, uh, to, to, to uh, understand. It's just a very challenging book. If you read the book of Hebrews, there's warnings all the time. Warnings, warnings to seemingly believers to make sure that you're saved and losing your salvation. Warnings and promises. Let's talk about warnings, all right? In Mark 13, verse 13, it basically says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Hebrews 10, 23 says that you are to hold fast to your faith to be saved. Jude 1, 21 says you are to keep yourself in the love of God to be saved. So these certainly are warnings designed to elicit a response out of people that are reading the scriptures. When the Bible says to keep yourself in the love of God to be saved, Jude one twenty one, then I, when if I read that, I said, well, I need to, there's a responsibility there. I need to keep myself in God's love. I need to hold fast in order to be saved. I need to endure 
to the end to be saved. It's a warning. It's telling me to hold on, to keep myself, to endure in order to make it to heaven. So it's calling on personal responsibility, right? A response to get to heaven from me. It's just not all God. There's, there's a response from me. But then we have Bible promises, right? The Bible tells us in John 10, 28, that you will never perish. That's a pretty strong promise. You will never perish. It tells us in Romans 8, you will never be separated from God's love. And Jude one twenty four, right after it tells you to keep yourself in the love of God, the Bible says that he will keep you from falling. What? So, after all these years of warnings and promises, warnings and promises, warnings and promises, this is how I look at that, all right? The Bible warnings encourage the true believer to hold fast to the Lord. Bible warnings encourage true believers to hold fast, to press in, to keep on keeping on, to be faithful, to say no to sin, to live a life of holiness. Bible warnings do that. When you read the warnings in Scripture, if you're a genuine believer, it motivates you to take that personal responsibility to make your calling and election sure. That's what Peter tells us. Make your calling and election sure. The Bible tells me to examine myself, to make sure I'm in the faith, to make sure Christ dwells within me. If you're a true Bible believer, you will do just that. Yes, 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 Lord. All right. The Bible promises encourage the true believer to rest in the power of God. Exactly what it does. The warnings motivate me to do what I need to do to follow Jesus, to stay true to the Lord, to cultivate my faith, to make sure I'm saved, to make sure I'm bearing fruit. But the Bible promises, what do they do? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're never going to perish. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your salvation. You're kept by the power of God. Those Bible promises encourage me to say, ah, I don't have to keep myself. It's not dependent on me. I'm not the reason I'm going to heaven. Jesus is the reason I'm going to heaven. My salvation is of the Lord. I rest in God. So as a true believer or a genuine believer, I work from a position of rest. I work from a position of rest. Does that make sense? Because we're called to rest in the Lord, right? There's a rest that remains to the people of God. He that rests in the Lord enters into the rest has ceased from his own labors as God did from his. I rest in that. I I just trust him, and then as I work for him, as unto the Lord, it's from a position of rest. Not striving to, I'm not trying to be saved every day, nor am I trying to stay saved every day. But I do take those Bible warnings seriously, and they makes me want to follow Jesus with all my heart. But I know I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. So I work 
from a position of rest or trust. Let me read this to you. I, you guys are thinking I can tell you, tell that you are. To those who backslide, draw back, or fall away, the Bible warnings guard against false assurance or fruitless Christianity. Believers can backslide. They can draw back. The parable of the prodigal son is classic. As he left his father's home, went out into the world, ended up living with the pigs and eating with the pigs and that horrible lifestyle. Okay, so you have these Bible warnings. So if I'm, if I am a person that Say I claim to know Jesus, or I pray to be saved, or I had a work of God in me for a time or for a season, and then I fall back, draw back, backslide, go back into the world. When I read the Bible warnings, what do I think those Bible warnings are for? Those Bible warnings are to warn them to make sure that they truly are saved because they're living a lifestyle that gives indication that they truly are not saved. So warning. In other words, to the backslider, the warnings are there and they're a genuine warning that they, because of the lifestyle they're living, might not really truly be a born-again believer and that they can't trust and what took place five years ago at an altar call or whatever. But what they have to do is examine themselves to make sure they're in the faith. I would never minister assurance to a person that is terminally ill, that has not followed Jesus or has living, lived what we consider a backslidden life, but claims to have known the Lord or had a salvation. I would never minister assurance to them. I would minister the warnings of Scripture and to make sure before they step into eternity that they truly are a born-again believer. All right. I got you all thinking. I know the issues of Bible warnings and Bible promises are very challenging. Anybody have questions on this? And I'll do my best. So the Bible tells us, Jesus, you know, he, he wants you to be, to be strong, to be persevering, to be enduring. He who endures to the end shall be saved. In the parable of the sowing the word, one of them endured only for a while. And then persecution came and they got offended. So endured only for a while. So true salvation endures to the end. True salvation endures to the end. They don't endure only for a while. There's a persevering to those that are genuinely believed. I do not believe that enduring is what saves you. I believe your faith saves you, but the genuine faith of the work of God causes you to be enduring. All right. Anybody have any questions on this? Yes, Skip.
if you go to a Baptist church, okay, they'll say that you get the whole nine yards right off the bat. Yes, yes. I do not think you get it all right off the bat. Uh, he's talking about a uh, Baptist doctrine that basically they would say this, that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, you have all of God. You have everything that you need. But we're a charismatic church, and we believe in a second work of grace called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in your life, but there is a distinct work where you now can be filled with the Spirit, which is different than being saved and having the Holy Spirit. So I think there is a difference, all right, because I think that there is different measures of the Spirit, And the reason why I say that is this. It says concerning Jesus that he was given the Spirit without measure. Without measure. Well, so some are given the Spirit with measure. Now, Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room, and he breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20. Received the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. And then he said, wait in Jerusalem until you be filled with the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, they were, you need something? I was looking through the mic. I wasn't taking it around for you. Oh, I, I thank, thank you very much. So uh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Huh? You receive it, and they said, be filled with the Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 2, it said that they were then filled with the Spirit. So there's a way to have the Holy Spirit, and then later on be filled with the Spirit. Now, I think that's what the Bible teaches. I do think that's what the Bible teaches. And my testimony confirms that that is what the Bible teaches. Why do I say that? Because I was saved on a Thursday, and the Holy Spirit came into my life. I felt cleansed. I felt him. It was different. I was alive unto God. He came into me. And then later on, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is almost like an anointing or empowerment to serve. It was separate. It was afterwards. But it was more of God. That's what I think happens. I think every person that is genuinely saved, they have the Spirit of God. But then you can get filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God. And it can be a separate, distinct experience. And I'll just say this. In Acts chapter 19, Paul went to Ephesus, found some disciples, and he taught them a more perfect way. And the Bible says he baptized them in water. And so there was a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They then were baptized in water And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So they believed, got baptized in water, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So there is a second work, distinct from salvation, I think. So that would be my answer. I do not believe when you get saved, you do have God on the inside of you, but I don't think that's all that God has for you. I think there's more that God then can do. Uh, Skip's going to. Is there always evidence of speaking in tongues when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit? 
I, I tend to agree with the assembly of God that it is the initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit. I prayed with many, many people, and uh, some have not prayed in tongues, and I encourage them uh, to continue to believe God for that, and many then receive it. And so I look for God to do that. I believe it's, in the book of Acts, the evidence that's most frequently given when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And so... I pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit, to have the evidence of speaking in tongues. If they don't have that evidence, uh, I try to just minister uh, the peace of God and the hope that as they just continue to open up their heart, they will receive. My wife was prayed for, and then two weeks later, received the evidence of speaking in tongues. I got it the night I was prayed for because... I'm more yielded, compliant, more spiritual. We all know that, don't we? Everybody has a story to tell on that. But you were a new wineskin, and you were getting the new wine poured into a new wineskin. You didn't have 20 or 30 years. Well, yeah, one yes, I do agree with that. If, uh, if you've been taught against it, like let's say you're a raised Baptist, you were taught against it, and you receive everything from God by faith. So if you were taught against it, sometimes you have these doubts or these concerns or these fears. And many times that keeps you from opening up your heart fully like you should. And you might struggle with it. So I, I understand that. I wasn't taught against it. I didn't know what I was getting that night. You know, I was Roman Catholic. And uh, one thing, Roman Catholics generally, they don't have Bible knowledge, right? Just don't know the Bible at all. You just do the liturgy and the sacraments, but you really don't know Bible. So... You're correct. You know, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's not like I'm trying to overcome years of being taught against it and uh, that this is of the devil or whatever. I just opened my heart and received, and it was wonderful. There are Catholics that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, God moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Anybody else have a, a question tonight? Yes. Ken Holden gave the thing for the Holy Spirit. Well, my husband got it a couple days later by watching TV with the... Uh, what do you call the, uh, what is it? Oh, um, it was in New Orleans, the, 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 the black people that go marching and they're praying and stuff. And he was watching it and he says, when I come home from work, he says, you won't believe this. He said, I received the Holy Spirit. But at first he said to me, you won't believe what happened. And I thought, who died? You know, and so I says to him, I says, well, don't be praying over me. That's a Catholic talking through me, okay? You know, because we didn't believe in that. Well, I was ironing, and I was saying the rosary, and all of a sudden I stopped saying the rosary, and I start speaking. And it's like, it scared me. But then after that, I love it. So you're praying the rosary, and then the Holy Spirit yes. came upon you yes. and filled you up. Yes. God moves in mysterious ways. That's what I'm saying. It's just like... You know, I thought, I'll never be able to do that. And, and can I at least say this? Please do not make your takeaway 
that, that if you pray the rosary, you'll be filled with the Spirit. Don't <laughs> no. make that your major no. takeaway. No. But uh, you just had an open heart to God, and uh, God saw that. You were hungry, and God saw that. So th- that's awesome. I- I've had lots of uh, testimonies through the years. Uh, uh, I prayed with this one guy, and uh, he did not receive uh, his having real challenges, believing that he was worthy of it and didn't quite understood it. Uh, but he was hungry, and he went home. Then he came back a week later. He says, i got to tell you, I was sleeping, and I was dreaming. And in my dream, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking in this other language. And I woke up from my dream speaking in this other language. And I laid in bed for seemingly hours just praising the Lord and speaking to God. And it was wonderful. So God, while he was sleeping, began to do a work in him. And he woke up. I had this other guy who came and he wanted to know about it. And I had a little booklet and I gave it to him. I said, read this. It's going to answer a lot of your questions. And uh, he came back uh, the next week and he said, I got testimony. I'm reading that book. And as I'm reading that book, uh, it's just all about the Lord and scripture. I just set it down and just began to praise the Lord. And God just filled me with the spirit. I mean, there's so many different ways. So many different ways. You, I had people lay hands on me and pray over me. And my wife uh, went and kneeled down by the side of her bed. I mean, there's so many different ways that God can, uh, can meet with you and deal with you. We all have our story. And the Holy Spirit is very unpredictable how he moves in the lives of people. Even your salvation story. Everybody has a salvation story. There's no one way that people get saved. I got saved going forward to the altar. Right? Other people get saved on personal witnessing. Other people are watching TV and they hear the preacher and they pray along with the preacher. I mean, there's just so many different ways to get saved. God's just marvelous. Any other questions? Any other questions? Yes, way back there. Genuine born-again believer bearing what I consider the fruits of salvation. Yes. I always had to put that in there. Because people claim they're genuine believers and they have no fruit. So that makes me... But if you've truly been born again, then there's the guarantee of your salvation. Yes. You don't have to fear uh, going to hell. I can't be any more clear than this. You're acting like I'm not being clear. I mean, I've been, under, I've been under your teaching for years, so that was my take on it. But the more and more I read, I'm, I'm reading the warnings, and I also know many people that my spirit bore witness that they were born-again believers. Yeah. No doubt in my mind. We serve the Lord. We've, you know, done all that. There's a genuine salvation, and yet they've now gone on a different track. Okay, all right. Well, that, so my question, I'm Will they about, end up in heaven? Yeah. Okay, very good. So... And God, God can answer that question. I'm not God, but I will say this. You can, uh, when it comes to falling away, you can fall away from your steadfastness, because the Bible says don't fall from your steadfastness. So you can fall from your steadfastness. You can fall away from your first love, because you read the book of Revelation, the book of Ephesians, it talks about they left their first love, and it says repent, repent from whence you are fallen. So you can fall from your steadfastness. You can fall away from your first love. 
We know, like the prodigal son, he fell away, but then returned and was received back to his father. So you can backslide or fall away from your relationship with God, right? Your fellowship with the Lord and return. And the Bible also talks about those that fall away from their faith, the great apostasy. And I believe those don't know God proved by their abandonment of the faith that they never truly were saved. Now, the people that you know, and we all know people that backslide or draw back, fall away. You could also fall away from grace, like the book of Galatians talks about. You fall away from grace. But that is not falling away from salvation grace. That's falling away from, that's going back into works. That's what that means. They fell away from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and now trusting illegalism. That's what the falling away from grace is there in the book of Galatians. But we all know people that backslide or draw back or fall away from God or turn back to the world. And are they genuine believers? Now, I would say if they're genuine believers, then they will return to the Lord. They will one day return to the Lord. And if they never return to the Lord in this life, then I say the warnings of Scripture apply to them. And that I would have no assurance as a pastor that when they passed away, having never come back to faith in Christ, having fallen away from the Lord, living a life of sin, I would have no assurance that they went to heaven. I don't know what to say about that, you know. I, I just wouldn't, you know. They just never came back to the Lord. They never repented, even, even in their death experience. They just never looked to God. They just had this hardened heart. It's like they, uh, so I would say, were they genuine believers, never coming back to the Lord? Uh, you know, so yes, Lisa, I would say a true genuine believer is going to go to heaven. But I guess that's how you define that true genuine believer. Yes, go ahead. I think this is one of those things where we take comfort in making it so we can understand it. And there are some things that we won't fully understand until we're on the other side of eternity. But the, there's another phrase, uh, and you gave examples. Uh, what about the term of disowning? To disown means I owned it at one time. And this is one of the toughest ones I struggle with, to, to Lisa's question. If we disown him, he will disown us, is what it says in Second Timothy. And uh, that implies that, that there was ownership there in terms of the relationship. So again, I, this could go on all night. I'm just, I'm just comfortable that we don't have all the answers and try to avoid simplifying it for my own sense of comfort to answer what only God knows sometimes. Well, thank you for that, John. I appreciate that. So you're, you're at rest and at peace. I am. Uh, yeah, well, that's good. That's good. And what I want all of you to uh, totally be persuaded that you are a genuine believer, and if you are a genuine believer, to have full and complete confidence that you are going to heaven and that you don't have to worry about that. 
Nor do you have to somehow trust in yourself to get there. But your trust is in the Lord. But I also want you to take away this. If you are not bearing the fruits of salvation, then you need to be wary and to really make sure that you are a genuine believer. Because who would want to go into eternity not serving and living for Jesus? I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. All right, very good, very good. Well, you were, oh, there's one way back there. Boy, we are, make it, make it quick. What'd you say? You got to wait. I think there's a misnomer in believing because the devil believes, but he's not saved. Well, right. I mean, you've got to make sure you have true saving faith, right? I believed in God and the gospel, being raised Roman Catholic. I did. But it wasn't saving faith. Saving faith has repentance with it. And then a trusting in and relying on Jesus Christ. And true saving faith is of the Spirit. It's a gift from God. It's not something that arises in your own heart. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Saving faith is a gift from God that you exercise the salvation. It's not a good work coming from your heart that God rewards with salvation. You're done. God bless you.